with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 13. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of, the cor of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but for only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day." And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then said he to the, mass, stretch forth, uh, to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Thus sends the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired word. Our quotation today comes from the comments of Jeremiah Burroughs on Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know those scriptures that tell you that God accounts it as his own. Christ accounts it as given to him, what is given to a disciple in the name of a disciple. And inasmuch as you gave it to these little ones, you gave it unto me. We find that God stands so much upon the works of mercy that he is willing to have his own worship to stay upon it. If the matter lies thus, that I either, either I must for a time be without worship or in those necessities be without relief, saith God, I will rather be without worship than they shall be without relief. That scripture in Hosea 6.6 6, quoted diverse times by Christ in the gospel I will have mercy and not sacrifice is a text that all that are acquainted with scripture cannot be ignorant of. 
God stands much upon his sacrifice, but he stands much more upon mercy. Thus God saith, if both be laid in the balance, either a sacrifice to be offered unto me or a work of mercy unto this poor brother, if there must be one done, let the work of mercy be done rather than sacrifice. Surely it's that that God highly uh, prizes, uh, prizes highly. The Lord is content to be without sacrifice for the sake of mercy. Be merciful, therefore. So since it's been some time since I last took up this topic, we'll begin by a brief recap of what we discussed, and I'll kind of give you a preview of what's kind of coming so that we can fit this sermon into the larger context of where I intend to go, should uh, the Lord allow. We began our time together noting that our confession of faith and catechism recognizes from the scriptures several classes of work that ought to be done on the Sabbath day. We quoted specifically from the larger catechism, question 117, which says, It is our delight to spend the whole time, except so much of it as is to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And so we took that parenthetical phrase there and said, what is it? What are these works of mercy and works of necessity? And how might we take those works and sanctify them on the Sabbath day? This is appearing in the question, how shall we sanctify the Sabbath day? So these are good questions to ask when you come to your catechism. From there, we're led to consider our text, which is used as a proof test text, as uh, Pastor Todd mentioned earlier. Very particularly, we see almost a very clear divide between these two sections, verses 1 through 8 and verses 9 through 13, as Christ both shows that works of necessity and works of mercy are appropriate on the Sabbath day. After a brief exposition of these passages, or what might, some might call brief, we drew out for our consideration two general principles that will help to inform us as to how we ought to approach the Sabbath day, all the works of the Sabbath day, whether they be piety, mercy, or necessity, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and sanctifying in the use of it. The first is derived from Christ's statement in Mark 27, which is a parallel to this passage. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And we saw that, we noted that the Sabbath, Sabbath day is given to us by God that we might grow in our faith and love and devotion to him. And that the Lord is a merciful and compassionate father who knows our frame and weakness, as Psalm 103 13 through 18 teaches us. He knows that we need a day every week to come, to gather together, to worship and serve him, to lay aside our worldly employments and recreations so that we might set our mind on those things to come, those things that uh, he has bestowed upon us so richly in Christ. And that we might, as the disciples in John 13, 4 through 10, have our feet washed by Christ so that the dust that we kick up in this world might not cling to us, that we might be cleansed with all. 
So our Lord does not only show kindness and compassion towards us by giving us this great provision of the Lord's day, but he also knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we have needs and uh, afflictions and maladies that might arise. And he has made provision for those in works of mercy and necessity when they are rightly taken up. He cares for our whole person, body and soul. The second principle was derived from the requisite duty that God requires of us in response to his gracious provision for us. And that we derive from Isaiah 58, 13 through 14, wherein we're reminded that one of our duties is to call the Sabbath a delight, holy of the Lord, honorable. This delight that we are to have in the Sabbath day manifests itself in several different ways. It manifests itself in laying aside carnal and worldly pleasure. Do not speak your own words. Do not think your own thoughts. Do not do your own activities. Instead, wholly dedicate yourself unto the Lord for the whole day. And in taking up those holy and heavenly duties that the Lord has provided us, we ought to do so with delight. Again, speaking to that inward disposition that we are taking hold of what God has given us and we are delighting in it. And that inward disposition that we have toward the Sabbath day plays a pivotal role in how we approach these various aspects of our duty on the Sabbath. What is it to come to the Lord's uh, worship with a heart that is out there? What is it to show mercy without any desire to give glory to God? What is it to eat and to drink not to the glory of God? These things ought not to be done on any day of the week, but most particularly the Sabbath. So, To give you kind of a preview of where we're going, as is often the case, I had a particular plan when I first gave the sermon last time, and then with more study, decided to modify that plan and elongate the road a little bit. (laughs) So what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss works of mercy generally considered. Generally considered as part of the Christian life not with a particular focus on the Sabbath day, so that we might begin from that general to begin to drill down into that duty on the Sabbath day. So today we're going to talk about a definition of works of mercy and then talk about the various types of mercy as we see it in the scripture. Um, Then hopefully uh, next time I have the opportunity, should the Lord allow, I want to begin to show the appropriateness of works of mercy on the Sabbath day and then provide some practical directions both generally and particularly with regards to works of mercy. Then we'll move on to works of necessity. And I think that the reason why I want to do this is because this is such a broad topic, brethren. There's so much the scriptures have to say about mercy. God's mercy and how we, as the saints of God, reflect God's mercy as being instruments of his mercy toward others. And I, it's, I found it impossible to try to shrink it all into one. So, with that then, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what are works of mercy? What are works of mercy? So having been reminded of those general principles, we're not going to concentrate our attention more particularly on this question. 
In this sermon, we are speaking again of works of mercy considered generally. I will spot a few areas where it differs a little bit from the Sabbath day in particular, but this is just by way of reminder. Um, Works of mercy, if we might put a definition on it, are those actions, activities, and labors that arise from an inward, gracious disposition of love, compassion, and pity, and uh, that aim toward the relief of others in their natural infirmities, afflictions, and maladies, from which we all suffer in this fallen condition. Okay? So, in this definition, I want to speak a word of works of mercy on the Sabbath day in particular, as uh, Reverend Burroughs mentioned earlier, that there is a particular... um, detail that's required in the definition when we consider it within the scope of the Sabbath. And that's the sense of urgency, right? It's something that can't be put off until tomorrow. There's a particular need that must be fulfilled. And that can only be done now, lest loss of life, property, and so forth. Okay, so that definition, we basically have two aspects. We have an inward disposition that manifests itself in outward activity, right? Very simply. Inward, gracious disposition manifesting itself in outward activity. So let's draw out those two principles real quick. The inward disposition draws attention to the fact that uh, it is uh, that uh, in order for mercy to be true mercy, it must come from God. We in our natural state do not have a merciful spirit. We've heard just recently about the fact that uh, love, true love, is something that only the saints possess. The same is true with mercy. And the two are married beautifully together. Um, Observe firstly that the scriptures consistently testify that compassion Pity and mercifulness are not characteristic of our fallen condition. Okay? And for that, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And we're going to through verse 32. Uh, I'm sorry, 28 through 32. Paul says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, um, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. So we hear the term unmerciful in that passage, very plainly, unmerciful. 
But I want you to widen your conception a little bit and do a little implication work with me. In all this list of sins, do you find anything that would even bend towards compassion, pity, or mercy? Anything that might be a spark toward it. Think about these, uh, as I was, I was thinking about these sins, think about it. Covetousness, maliciousness, envy, malignity, despiteful, inventors of evil things, being void of natural affections. Does any of that spark compassion, pity, or anything along those lines? And the apostle says that they are full of these things. Now this is not to say that unbelievers can't do outward works of humanitarian or philanthropy. But when we think about the commandments of God, we cannot just rest on outward actions, right? The three-by-three three obedience that we hear so much about in this church is very important to us. What about that inward disposition? Am I doing it for a tax write-off? Am I doing it to gain uh, pride or uh, self-aggrandizement? If those are the motivations behind the mercy, it is not true mercy, brother. The other passage I, I'd like to just reference is Proverbs 12:10. You're welcome to turn there. In this passage, Solomon will draw a comparison between the tender mercies of the righteous and those of the wicked. And here's what he says. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Okay, now you might be thinking, now, Mr. Waylaw, you're going off and talking about beasts now. But there's, while here the Lord would compare that tenderness and mercifulness of the righteous and the wicked, even in those things that are apparently trivial, right? Insignificant. Does God care for oxen? Right? However, here it teaches us something very important. And this characterization that we see here is quite revealing when we do a little bit of meditation on it. I'm going to draw an illustration uh, from a writer that I, I was able to find, and I think it's a good one. He would compare this to how easy it is, you know, when you think about you know, the activities that we go about, how easy is it for us to step on an ant and not feel any remorse? Or even more so, to step on a worm. Or perhaps to, as some do, uh, take out the magnifying glass and go to your nearest anthill or kick the proverbial dog. But is this not because for the unbeliever, we comfort ourselves in knowing that man is greater than these beasts and that these irrational beasts can uh, have no revenge upon us? Are they not despised in our eyes because of the significant, albeit finite, distance there is between us and them that our eyes should not pity or show compassion toward them? But consider, brethren... The infinite distance that is between us and God. And with what great mercy and goodness he cares for even the most despised of creatures that walk on this earth. Uh, 
Compared to God, man, and often in scripture, is described as a worm, a dog, less than the balance on a scale are the nations. And we're nothing. We're less than nothing when compared to our almighty God and his infinite majesty. There's nothing that we can do. If God should withhold his mercy but for a second, we would plunge into destruction. And yet he has pity. What is man that thou considerest him? However, as we have seen, the wicked did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They have forgotten that they are the recipients of his goodness. Every breath that they take is God's breath. Every beat of their heart is the beat that God allowed them to have. And if he should remove but a small portion of those mercies, if but a moment, all that's left for them is destruction. Thus, having forgotten God in their minds, they turn toward those who are underneath them and they say, let's oppress them, let's gain advantage over them, let's, let's eat them up as bread. They cannot be bothered to give comfort or relief to those who are below, and so the best of their tender mercies are cruel. But for the righteous, it is not so. Having apprehended not only God's common goodness, but his abundant grace in Christ, he finds himself stirred to great compassion and mercy to all that are under their charge. Bowels of mercy and compassion overflow as we reflect the character of our God back onto those around us. So in contrast to the wicked then, those who have the love of God upon them, who have been raised to that newness of life in Christ, are described as possessing this inward, merciful disposition. So certain is this connection that the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 14-19 will place love and compassion toward the brethren as one of the marks that God, uh, the love of God abides on us. Let's turn to 1 John 3, 14. First John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we, can see, we, perceive, we, uh, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Notice that the Apostle John draws a stark contrast between what we saw of the wicked 
and now what we see of the righteous. And what he says is that our love toward one another as brethren in the faith is a sure mark that the love of God abides on us. As the exemplar of perfect love uh, being demonstrated by God, John calls us to consider that our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us in the great love with which he loved us. And would we be constrained then in our mercies? Our mercy should be willing to go just as far, is what John says. Even to lay down our lives for the brethren's sake, if called to do so. If the mercies of the righteous toward one another would extend even unto death, shall we fail to distribute to the need of our brethren in worldly things? The other passage I'd like you to point you to is this merciful disposition is not exhausted upon the brethren alone, but just as our Heavenly Father is merciful to all, so we are liberal in our mercies even toward the wicked. Luke 6, which is a familiar passage uh, to us, I'll just kind of quote a few, passage, uh, few sections. Luke six twenty-seven through 38, uh, he says, But love ye... Your enemies, and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Observe that the saint's merciful disposition is an imitation of our merciful God. We have been raised to newness of life. We have been recreated, created in Christ Jesus in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And having those attributes, then the seed of mercy is planted. And with all other graces, we'd expect it to grow. And what is characteristic of the love here that is made manifest through mercy? Doing good to those who hate you, blessing those that curse you, praying for those who despitefully use you. If our, our enemy should ask for aid and he be the proper object of charity, that is, it's a lawful use of charity, which we'll get to later, we should aid him in the supply of his necessities. In verses 35 through 36, this merciful disposition is characteristics of those who are called children of the highest. And so, while this merciful disposition is present in some degree in all of those who are children of the highest, yet the Apostle Paul in, uh, will instruct the Corinthians that this mercy is also something that we should be actively putting on. In Colossians 3, 12 through 14, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all things, put on charity, which is the, perf- per- uh, bond, which is the bond of perfectness. Again, we see this stark contrast between how the Bible presents those who are his beloved, his, the sons of the highest, and those who are the wicked. As we saw in Romans 1. The complex of characteristics here that these passages are describing to us all run in the favor of mercy. 
So whereas the complex of characteristics described by Paul run away from mercy, those who have been raised into newness of life in Christ Jesus all run toward mercy. Notice that this disposition that Paul is describing here, bowels of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, compassion. So, so far for the inward disposition, now let's look at the outward activity aimed toward the relief of others. Having this inward disposition toward mercy, the people of God are stirred with compassion and pity for the affections and maladies of others. For the sake of time, we cannot exhaust every, detail, every uh, merciful activity that the Lord has called us to, but what we want to do is consider these mercies according to their end. Right, according to the object that is being aimed at. Normally, when people consider works of mercy, they're thinking about those outward activities, right? Someone needs a little money, you know, maybe needs gas money or needs some food or whatever those cases are. Those are the things that people normally call works of mercy. Um However, we should not limit our conception to this, just those mercies which tend toward the body. Um, what the Lord has called us to is more than just that. The first thing to consider is that the mercies we demonstrate toward our fellow man, especially those of the household of faith, should encompass the entirety of their being, body and soul. Consider how untoward it is for us to consider one to the exclusion of the other. Let me ask you, what is it if we should be so concerned with the souls of our fellow men and to neglect their bodily need? James speaks to this directly in James 2.16. And, uh, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warm, be filled. Notwithstanding... You give them not those things which are needful for the body. What doth it profit? While the primary aim of this passage is to teach us that faith without works is no true faith, faith without works is dead, the illustration shows how incongruous offering spiritual encouragement is without actually offering any bodily necessities to the person. It is easy to say, be warm, be filled, peace be upon thee. It is a completely different thing to give up of our own stock and store, our time, talents, and treasures, as has been said before, to the needs of those around us. Now, this is not to say that those spiritual encouragements that we give one to another or those prayers that we offer unto God um, are ineffectual. We don't want to go there either. We don't want to discount or diminish um, the effectiveness of those things. The same author who wrote this passage also wrote in 5.16, the effectual uh, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. However, it is to say that prayer or the use of spiritual means without the corresponding faithful activity of providing for the needs of the body is empty. Now, Let's turn to the other side of that coin. The opposite is also true. It is not merciful to be so concerned with the afflictions and maladies of the body 
without also providing the balm of Gilead to the wounded soul. Would it be proper to aid a dying body without also providing healing to the soul? Even if you could lift someone out of temporal poverty for a moment, let's say that one of us in here was wealthy beyond measure. And we could, with but a stroke of a check, lift somebody out of poverty and set them up for life. What use is it if we do not also care for the soul? If I might make application from our Lord's statement in Mark 8.36, what is it if you should give the man, a man the whole world and yet never provide that spiritual balm that he might save his soul? The soul is more excellent than the body. Thus, uh, works that aid the soul should be done with more diligence than those done to the good of the body without neglecting either. Thus, we will note from the example of our Lord and the work of his ministry that when we see him going about healing diseases and casting out demons and addressing the spiritual maladies of those around him, that that was always to an aid that he might teach them the truth. And so you'll see over and over and over again that, yeah, there were times that Christ was demonstrating acts of mercy, even on the Sabbath day, as we read in our text today. And yet this was also coupled by instruction. It was also coupled by a good word in season. And so let us take that example. So as we consider these, we're going to divide these out. We're going to talk about various types of works of mercy to the soul and various types of works of mercy to the body. And we're going to do that separately. But in your mind, what you ought to be thinking is, how can I join these two things together so that whatever the need is, whatever the mercy is that I'm going to bestow, how can I accompany not only a relief for the needs of the body, but also a good word in season that might lift the soul that might raise it up to new heights of sanctification. So let's talk about first concerning the relief of the soul. As we've said before, not all mercies that we might bestow upon one another, uh, uh, of all the mercies that we might bestow upon one another, spiritual mercies that we offer are chief and should not be neglected. I will not be giving you an exhaustive list (laughs) of all the mercies that we can show to the soul, but let's pick out a few for our consideration. The first work of mercy that I want you to want for your consideration is praying for others. Praying for others. Prayer is a merciful work in which we call upon the Almighty God in accord with His will to provide relief for the distress and affliction of those that are in need. This is listed first primarily because all other means that we would have at our disposal are ineffectual unless God blesses them. We are but instruments of his mercy. And so we must call upon him. Whatever we do, we must bathe our activity in fervent prayer. For the sake of time, I'll point your attention to several passages of Scripture for your meditation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 
In this passage, what we see is that Paul earnestly instructs us to prayer within the context of our spiritual struggle against the wiles of the devil, the rulers of of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. But we note in our passage several things about what Paul is describing here. First thing is, is that our prayers should be full and constant. Full and constant. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. We should be praying on all occasions as often as our own and others' needs arise. We must pray in the Spirit that is in accord with the will and work of the, of the Spirit of God. We must be diligent to watch, looking toward the end of our prayers. It is as it were an arrow that is shot toward heaven and we cast our gaze where that arrow may fall. And we must persevere and be importunate in prayer. Such as the parable of the woman and the unjust ruler in Luke 18, 1-8. Knowing that God will avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him. Right? What do we see? We see an unjust judge and we see this woman who has a case to be brought to him. Bam, 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 bam. Bam, 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 bam. Are we knocking on God's door like that for one another? That's the kind of importunity that Paul is addressing. Philippians 4, 6-7 through 7 demonstrates that we are to be anxious for or careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is the end that the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We also note from Matthew 5:44 that petitions should also be made for the souls and the needs of the wicked. The second way, moving on, second way that we might show mercy is by pitying them. Showing pity, compassion. This is still considered one of our works of mercy from a private and inward disposition, but it is nonetheless important. In Amos 1.11, when addressing the sins of Edom, the prophet is careful to note that Edom had cast off all pity. As we read in Colossians 3.12-14 that we read earlier, we are to put on bowels of compassion such that when we see one another struggling under trial or temptation, that we might be stirred up in our souls to go and provide the relief that is needed. For the remainder, I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 11 through 28. First Thessalonians 5:11 through28, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, 
Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also will do it. In this passage... The apostle is exhorting the Thessalonian church how they might walk together as children of light and children of the day. There is an expectation that until the Lord returns, we will be compassed about and assaulted by many trials and temptations, so we must be sober and watchful. It is a mercy that we show one to another when we practice the kind of sobriety and mutual love toward one another that Paul is expressing throughout this chapter. From this passage, then, let us derive several more examples of how we might show mercy to one another's souls. Our third work of mercy to the soul is we show mercy to one another by exhorting and comforting one another unto edification. Verse 11. This first requires that we show careful and diligent care for our own souls that we are in and about the things of God so that we might, when we come together and have holy conferences one with another and have opportunities to speak to one another, that we would have a word in season. That we might share in our experiences, in our walk of faith, how we might encourage one another with the wondrous things that the Lord does for us each and every day as he bestows his mercies and graces upon us. And that these might build each other up. That they might uh, be an exhortation and a comfort one to another. As fellow saints and members of the same body, we ought to endeavor to promote the good of all of us by promoting the work of grace in each of us. We each have a duty to communicate our knowledge and experiences to one another, to speak one another to one another of the wondrous works that God has done in our lives. And that is one of the greatest mercies that we can show to one another. Throughout the Psalter, we actually heard it just a little bit ago, that oftentimes the, Lord, uh, the psalmist will think about the wondrous works that God has done in the past to buffet him up to look forward to future deliverances. And that is a comfort to us in the midst of trial. Honoring and uh, The second thing is we want to honor and esteem those that labor among us. Verses 12 through 13, this is a particularly uh, pointed work of mercy, but I thought it was important to bring out. We ought not to neglect to pray for and comfort those who minister among us. Ministers and Christian writers have often described the work of the ministry as a thankless ministry. Brethren, this ought not to be among us. It ought not to be. The call to the ministry comes with great weights that are placed upon those shepherds, those under-shepherds of Christ, as he gives over to them the care and nurture and admonition of his flock. Think about these questions. These were just some meditations of mine. 
How burdensome must it have been to the Apostle Paul to fear that all his labors among the Galatians may have been in vain? Galatians 2.2. How many tears from faithful ministers have been shed, and how much weight do men carry upon their shoulders knowing that God hath granted them the care of his sheep and put them into their trust? How much self-denial is required from our ministers? How many trials? How many are the assaults from the world, the flesh, and the devil? How many are the late and laborious nights of prayer and study and hope that the Lord would pour forth his grace upon those underneath the minister's charge? Brethren, it is a mercy that we must give to those who minister among us to comfort them, to uh, be willing not only to give of our temporal supply, but also to comfort them with those spiritual fruits. If I might make an illustration, this is like unto them as Aaron and Hur were to Moses when he stood upon the mount, when his hands grew weary over time, that they would hold them up rather than let them fall. These mercies that we show towards our ministers are a blessed thing among us. And this is what I believe is part of our duty in honoring and esteeming those who labor among us. Next thing is in verse 14, warning those that are unruly among us. Though it is difficult, it is a mercy uh, to such that are unruly to reprove them of their sins. Even when we must do so sharply. It is a twin duty, both of the ministry and of the people. The ministry of the church is instructed by the Apostle Paul to instruct those who oppose themselves if God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Sometimes these rebukes must be sharp, but it is not like the sword that deals the death blow, but like the scalpel of a surgeon to cut the cancerous mass, lest it take the whole body to the grave. As in Titus 1.13, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in faith. For the people, we must also provide encouragement and reproof to those who are going astray. To refrain from doing so would be to hate our brother, as it appears in Leviticus 19.17. In all this, let us remember that such rebukes and reproofs are kindnesses and mercies, as we may see in Psalm 145.5, let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer shall also be in their calamities. Sixth, comforting those that are feeble-minded and supporting those who are weak in faith. By this, the apostle is exhorting us to comfort those who are fearful or weak in faith by providing that support, coming alongside them as brethren, and to talk to one another about those fears, to talk to one another about those weaknesses, that we might build each other up, and that we might sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And finally, in seven, I could go on, but for the sake of time, we'll stop at seven. Rejoicing with one another. Think about it, brethren. 
Oh, what a pleasant thing it is to rejoice with one another for the mercies and graces that God sheds forth upon the earth. It is a wondrous, it is an honorable thing to rejoice and to comfort one another in the marvelous works of the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, as we read in 2 Corinthians 1. The Lord grants us these consolations that we might communicate them one to another and that this might promote greater thankfulness and greater hope for future deliverances as we discussed before. Now a question might arise with regards to the Sabbath day for these particular works of mercy. Are they works of mercy or are they works of piety? Um, I'm going to answer both. Yes. Okay, and here's why. In one respect, they might be considered works of piety. Um, The remedy for such distresses of the soul is instruction, direction, and reproofs gathered from God's word. In another respect, they are works of mercy in in that they are aimed to the relieving of a distressed soul, a soul in need. So if we might think of it this way, the matter of them is a work of piety the end of them is a work of mercy the matter of them is a work of piety the end of them is a work of mercy since works of mercies with respect to the soul might be considered as both a work of piety and a work of mercy we ought to approach these works with even more diligence i'm going to briefly touch on three uh, i think that's what i have time for today three mercies concerning the relief of the body The first one I would like to draw to your consideration is the visiting of the sick and those who are restrained in their liberty. The visiting of the sick and those who are restrained in their liberty. For these, I'll I'll give you these two references, Mark 1, 29 through 30, and Matthew 25, 36. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn to them. But in Mark 1, 29 through 30, we have an example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who being informed of Simon mother-in-law lying ill on the Sabbath day, went to her to provide her aid so that she might be more free to minister as was her normal duty on the Sabbath day. So here we see that actually a work of mercy is given so that it might relieve the person of their, stress, of their um, affliction so that they might be better enabled to do the work of the Sabbath. Matthew 25, 31 through uh, 46, the Lord speaks of the final judgment here and the dividing of the sheep of the goats. You'll remember this passage uh, as I describe it. As for what is pertinent to our topic today is how the sheep are characterized versus the goats. The Lord represents the mercies that the sheep are described as bestowing upon others as those things which are accounted to him. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. And here the sheep are saying, when did we do this? When were you a hungered? When were you in prison? And the Lord tells them, as you have done it unto the least of these your brethren, so you have done it unto me. The Lord so identifies with us and so graciously receives our works of mercy in Christ that he would say 
that those are services that are mine when you bestow them upon others. He has such a delight when his saints are instruments of his mercy that he is willing to account those things as his. The second one is relieving the needy of their wants. And this is where I'll, I'll point you to 1 Corinthians 16, 2, 2 Corinthians 9, Matthew 25, 35 through 36. Again, these are little, you know, sometimes, some might say, if I might digress a little bit, some might say, oh, but I do not have wherewithal to give. I'm barely scraping by myself. I want you to think of the woman in the Gospels who put two mites into the offering plate while Pharisees and rich men are coming by and striking the plate with their money. And she puts in two mites. And the Lord says, for her, she gave more than all. Right? Why is that? The Lord is not looking to the amount. He's looking to see his image reflected in you. He's looking to see you take up those characteristics of him as a loving and merciful father and to go to others with compassion and pity, to have your eye strike your soul. That's what he's looking for. And being foisted by that compassion like winds in the sail that you might be carried as far as you are able for one another. And then finally, we see from our passage, Matthew 12, 11, and Luke 13, 16, we provide aid to those who are in danger of losing their life or property. Those who are in danger of losing their life and property. In, in Matthew 12, as we just read, he asked the Pharisees a very important question. He asked them, shall any one of you have an animal fall into a ditch and shall not go and get it out on the Sabbath day lest they lose their life? Shall I not bestow life upon those who are much greater than animals? See, these are all works of mercy, brethren. And so as we kind of proceed forward, as we draw ourselves to a close, I want you to think about these. I, didn't, I kind of sporadically put your application throughout, but I want you to consider these as works of mercy generally considered, that when we approach the next time and we talk about the appropriateness of those works of mercy to the Sabbath day in particular, and then move on to some directions derived from God's word as to how we are to perform our mercies generally, and then specifically on the Sabbath, that you might be more equipped. But no matter how much we go, to, go down this road, brethren, we have to have that inward disposition. And that inward disposition only comes from new life in Christ. Call upon him. If you are finding that your compassion and your pity isn't living up to what we're describing here, call upon him. Ask that the Lord would reveal his grace and his mercy toward you so that you might be lifted up to greater mercy toward others. That you might be that instrument in the hand of God to be merciful unto your brethren, to show the compassion of Christ to the nations around and by those mercies that are bestowed upon the church by each one of us, one to another, that the nations around might look at us and go, look at these people. Look how they love and care for one another. 
Look at how there's no want. Look at how there's no need. See, we have a a society right now that people go to the government for that. It should never be, brother. Look around to your left and to your right. These are the brothers and sisters that the Lord has given you. And he said, be merciful unto them as I have shown you and them mercy. Let us pray together. Yes, please stand. Our Heavenly Father, the God of all mercies and the Lord of all comforts, we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we have great consolation in Thee, as we have received great comfort and great grace from Thee, that we might be instruments of grace and mercy and Thy truth toward one another, that we might lift each other up, that we might be stirred up in our compassion and our pity one toward another, that we might look out upon one another as image bearers of God and redeemed in Christ Jesus, his precious little ones, and that we might be stirred up, that our eye, when we see our brethren in need, might strike our soul, and that we might be willing to communicate all that thou hast so richly given us, one toward another, to supply those needs which exist among ourselves and also that to a watching world uh, we might be instruments of mercy that might draw uh, those uh, elect that still remain in their sin and iniquity uh, to Christ with bonds of love. And we pray all these things, Father, in the name of our gracious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.